Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former West Ham United, Everton, Leicester City, Selangor, Barnet, and England striker Tony Cotty about his Focus On interview for Shoot Magazine from 1985-86. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at the set pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Uh, full name? Anthony Richard Cotty. Birthplace and date? West Ham, London, uh, 11th of July, 1965. Height? I was five foot seven and three quarters, but uh, due to the aging of time, I'm down to five foot seven and a half. Uh, and the all important question, uh, do you still weigh 11 stone five pounds? I don't think I've weighed 11 stone five pounds since I was about 17, I think. Um, no, I'm up to uh, a very unhealthy between 13 and a half and 14 stone now. But um, I think my last playing weight was 12 stone 12. So I put on about a stone, which in 20 years is probably not too bad, I suppose, in the grand scale of things. No, I think if we could all um, put our hands up and say the same thing, we'd all be doing well. But yeah, let, let's, <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, it's fantastic to have you on the show, Tony. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, Mark. All good. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm uh, working for Sky. I've been working for Sky now for 19 years, so that's great. Back, the football's back on, as we all know, which is which is great to get back out to the games. And uh, unfortunately, the hospitality uh, where I do sort of my bits and pieces has been a bit decimated. But I think we're all hoping for a better, much better new year, and hopefully, everything will get back to normal. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, um, I've got to say that I've spoken to a few of my Everton heroes of youth for this series, um, but you're the first that I actively asked my barber for uh, to, cut, to cut my hair exactly like yours when I was 13 years old. So, I mean, for anyone that watches you regularly on the TV will know that you've still got a fantastic head of hair. It's mostly unchanged since your playing days. Well, myself, on the other hand, well, we, the least said about that, uh, the better. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's fair to say, Mark, you couldn't have a ton you've got your hair cut now, that's for sure. But, no, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my bum is a bit weird. I mean, I know you've got all the old uh, my, my bits and pieces from many years ago when I filled in the, uh, the interview and that, but um, I think my, my barnet hasn't really changed too much over the years. I don't know why, to be honest. I'm probably just lazy. I get up, wash my hair, a bit of gel in and off you go. So that's probably the answer to that one. Well, we are here to talk through that uh, 1985-86 Focus On interview that you did for Shoot magazine. Uh, and in the main image in the article, there you are in the famous West Ham claret shirt with the horizontal pinstripes that were sponsored by Avco. Uh, and you've got Arsenal's Viv Anderson uh, snapping away at your heels, possibly giving you a slight dig on your Achilles at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, it's quite a nice picture, actually. I mean, Viv, Viv's a friend of mine, so uh, yeah, he had a great career. But um, yeah, no, you look back and it's, it's a bit weird, actually, Mark. I mean, uh, you know, here we are, what, 2020, and you're talking about an interview that was done in 1986. And for me, it feels like we're sort of talking about another person because obviously you, you have your life, uh, well, you, I've almost had three lives, you know, sort of, sort of the life building up to being a footballer. I had the life as a footballer and now I've had the life as a pundit slash normal person, if you like. So 
um, yeah, I mean, looking back to 1986, it turned out to be a great season for West Ham. And but you know, when you think 34 years ago, it's, wow! It's, and it's gone like that. It's gone so quick. It's unbelievable. Mm. Well, West Ham then, uh, and they're one of those clubs that to me uh, always were and still are representative of its community and its fans are very rooted in the club and the area. And I would say that you're very much in that vein because as you told us in the beginning, you were born in West Ham, supported West Ham as a boy, uh, and then you played with distinction for the club twice. Uh, and I would say that that puts you right up there with the likes of Bobby Moore and Trevor Brookin as, as authentic hammers. I don't, I don't think I would ever put myself in the company of Bobby Moore and Trevor Bully. Very kind of you to do that, Mark. But I, I know what you mean. Very similar sort of East End boys who played for their clubs and you know many appearances between us and that. But no, but for me it was it was great to play for my hometown club. You know, because when you're born in West Ham, when your family are West Ham fans, and I'm, listen, I'm still a West Ham fan. I know I play for Everton and Leicester. But people ask me, "Are oh, you a West Ham fan?" Yeah, I am. I'm, I've always been and always will be a mad West Ham fan. So it was lovely for me to play for my team. Um, obviously, I had the six years at Everton in between the two spells at West Ham. But um, I think where I think I'm fortunate is that the three clubs that I played for, West Ham, Everton and Leicester, all three clubs are, are very similar. Different fan bases in terms of the size, you understand that. But very much community clubs, clubs that are about the people, very passionate fans. And, and, and there is that real sense of togetherness you know, with the family and the community and that. And, you know, hopefully that will continue through the years. But um, you know, it was lovely for me to go from West Ham to Everton and be welcoming to the club that was such a big family club as well. Uh, well, you mentioned in the um, interview here, uh, and like I think most boys of, of all the way through the ages, um, that the biggest influence on your career, unsurprisingly, was your dad, of whom you said had helped you a great deal and still was even back in 1986 when you were, you know, grown up and uh, left home. Was he also behind you starting off the famous Tony Cotty scrapbook? <laughs> yeah, my daddy's guilty as charged. Um, uh, sadly, I lost my dad in 2017, like three years ago. I lost my dad and it was tough. You know, I think anyone who's lost their dad will know what I'm talking about. It was you know, really hard to lose someone who's such a big influence in your life. But, um, you know, my dad was, he was, a, he was a good amateur player. I always joke with him because I played for West Ham and my dad played for East Ham. And that's actually true. So we used to have a bit of a laugh about that. But he was a decent player and he, he was also a very good coach. He'd done all his coaching badges. And um, when my football team was created, I, I lived in Romford as, a, as an under seven and, uh, player on a Sunday. And my dad became the manager of the team. He was very professional. Coaching was all done. So like, my dad was very influential on my early career and my career as I progressed. Um, but right from the age of seven, my dad used to keep um, a scrapbook. It was only like, a, I don't know, like an eight, eight, five size scrapbook. Uh, and what he used to do, he used to put the date of the game, he used to put Romford Royals versus County Park, whoever we're playing, what the score was, who the goal scorers were, what the team was. And then come the end of the week, when our local paper, and you get a little report with about three lines <laughs> saying about how, how well or how bad we've done. And he cut that out and paste it into the into the scrapbook so um i i literally got pretty much if I, i'm not i'm not as sad as this mark but if i wanted to i could go back to when i was seven and look at probably every game that i was involved in you know obviously i won't remember all the, a lot of the games but i could i can look at what games and you said you know who was we playing in 1979 for example i could go back and refer to it so my dad started it and then as i became older obviously i couldn't keep I couldn't ask my dad to carry on doing it. He said, well, you, you do it then. 
and which is what happened. And then I then made, not the mistake, but I, I, I sort of went public with it because John Motson, the old BBC commentator, said, uh, I've heard you've got scrapbooks. Can I come and do an interview? And I'd done the interview. And I didn't realise that, you know, what were we, 35 years later, that I was going to have so many people like yourself who say, what about your scrapbooks? The interview was 35 years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't regret, obviously, doing it. And John, I mean, John Motson loved it, the scrapbooks and everything. I've still got them, they're up in the loft as, uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you now, but um, I'm not as sad as to refer to them every day. Some people think I'm looking at the scrapbooks every day, that's not the case, Mark. Everything seemed to come quite quickly to you as a youngster because um, you uh, debuted for West Ham, uh, on which on your debut you scored age 17. Uh, you were first seen regular by 18. Uh, and as you mentioned here in the shoot interview, you'd done the England youth team and England under 21 caps all by the time you were 21. So um, were you a player with like bundles of natural ability and therefore it did come easy to you? Or were you somebody who, who had to work hard hard at the game to make sure you did get those opportunities and get into and learn a lot off the older pros at Upton Park or was it a bit of a combination of, t- of the two? Well I think um, you know trying to sort of reflect on my career I think I think I was I was blessed with I was very much a natural athlete um, my body I mean as I said I'm only I'm small compared to most footballers um, but I was very stocky I was powerful I was very very quick in my early days um, I also was a cross-country champion, an 800 metres champion, so I, I, and I played every other sport. So I'm very much a, a natural sportsman as such. Um, I think um, in terms of football, I always say the easiest thing for me to do was to score goals. You know, I loved the thrill of scoring a goal. When, when, I, when I became seven, eight, nine years of age, I just became obsessed with scoring goals. But to the point where I only wanted to score goals and I didn't want to run around. And even when I came to your beloved club, Everton, I... I you, if you watch me play, you see me standing up there. I didn't want to run around. But if you could get the ball into the penalty box to me, that I knew that I would score and convert the goals or the chances that I was being given. So um, it, it was tough at times. You know, I, I had the, um, you know, my dad to fall back on. But um, being a small player, I, I had to fight very hard to achieve what I did because, you know, everyone used to say, oh, yeah, good player, but he's too small. And that was it. I had it all throughout my youth as a kid. And, you know, so to get into the first team at 17, 18 was... It was, it was hard work. And then, of course, once you've made your debut and you start playing in the first team, it's even harder to stay there because everyone's trying to win your position and knock you out of the team. So uh, it's tough being a footballer. You know, everyone looks at footballers and thinks it's easy. It's not easy. You have to be very dedicated. You have to be talented and you have to, you know, make the most of whatever talent you've got. You know, it, every footballer is different in terms of what they're good at. You know, I was good at scoring goals. I was quick. I had a good football brain where I, I'd done good movement. And I think maybe was the things that helped me to become a footballer. Uh, well, we've already mentioned here this uh, the the debut on New Year's Day 1983, which came against Tottenham, uh, and you've mentioned it in the interview as your most memorable match to this point. Um, so, what do you remember about the goal and, of course, the occasion? Well, the as a 17-year-old, I mean, I'd, I'd only left school 18 months previous as a 15-year-old, so for me to like it was such a whirlwind. I didn't really have time to take it in and, uh, and appreciate it. I think and the start of the following season, I've still I've just turned 18 and I was in the first team the whole of that season. So um, I, I never really had time to to sort of reflect on what was really going on, Martin. It was interesting recently because um, there was a big fuss made about Declan Rice playing his 100th game. Declan's a fantastic player, played his 100th game for West Ham. 
and they produced a list of the youngest players to have ever played 100 games for, for West Ham. And Declan was 14th on the list, as in the 14th youngest. And I just took it that it would be, I don't know, Bobby Moore or Trevor Brookie and Frank Lampard or something. But I was actually number one. I I'd played 100 games by the time I was 19 years of age, which in itself, you look back and think, wow, you know. So, but my, you know, my debut, every, what I'm trying to say, everything happened a bit of a world when you don't really have time to appreciate. I loved my debut. Um, it was the equivalent of me being an Evertonian scoring against Liverpool in my debut because as West Ham fan, you Spurs are your main rivals and you know to score a goal such a young age and yeah, it was just a brilliant, brilliant day. And if you was to ask me the question now, what was my favourite ever goal? I would always say my first goal because it was the goal that you know it was the catalyst for everything I achieved in my career and you know one of the best feelings. There was a few goals that got close to that feeling as I got older through my career, but. The, you know, the thrill of scoring for West Ham on my day was, was fantastic. Well, if that was the, the biggest thrill of your career to that point, you've mentioned the biggest disappointment as being a Milk Cup quarter-final loss to Manchester United in that 85-86 season. Um, now, uh, probably there's a few bigger disappointments have, have overtaken that down the years. Uh, what would you say then is the, the, the biggest disappointment in your career? Which game? Um, I probably would say when I was at Leicester in 1999 and we got to the League Cup final uh, against Spurs again. And um, um, it was I, I played um, three cup finals for Everton, lost three finals. And that was my fourth final as a 33-year-old. And we lost, we got beaten, they scored in injury time and I was down to 10 men and we would have beaten them if it had gone to extra time and we lost 1-0. Uh, and I just thought, well, that's four cup finals, I'm never going to win a cup final. And then the following year in 2000, Leicester got back again and we beat Tranmere and I, I had my one and only winner's medal. So I think in terms of disappointment, I, the only, well, let's put it this way, the only time I cried on the football pitch was at Wembley that day when, when we lost. And I just thought, wow, you know, what, what's this all about? You know, I've been trying for 16 years to win a trophy, and I, you know, it was taken away from me and from Leicester, obviously. And, uh, and anyway, we came back the following year and uh, put that right. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, when I'd done the original interview, I was very, very much into my early days of my career, and I, I literally hadn't had that many disappointments. But that particular game we lost to, to Man United was a real disappointment because, you know, we felt we had a good team that year which we proved because we finished third at the end of the season. But, we, you know, we felt we could have had a good cup run. So that's why I said it was a disappointment to get knocked out by them. They've asked you about um, who your favourite players were. Uh, and it's obvious that you're a fully paid up member of the Brian Robson fan club because your favourite childhood player was West Ham's Brian Pop Robson. And your most admired player from the mid-1980s was England and Man United captain Marvel, Brian Robson. So I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to pick one for a Dream eleven, and you can only have one, which one would which one would you take? Oh, that's a tough question, Mark, that one, because obviously the two different players. I mean, the reason Brian Pop Robson, the original one, was my hero, because I grew up in the 70s watching West Ham. He played alongside David Cross. You might be a bit too young to remember those two players, but they was for me, they were my idols and great, great players and great goal scorers. Uh, and then, of course, the legend that was Brian Robson, who played for Manchester United in England so well, was just a phenomenal midfield player who, you know, just had a bit of everything. He was a goal scorer, he could tackle, he could run, he, you know, he, he, he was sort of a bit like Roy the Rovers really. So I think probably in answer to 
the question. I probably would go for the, the Brian Robson and Manchester United to be in that midfield, but you do need a goal scorer. So if we haven't got any other available goal scorers, Pop Robson's going up front for me. Um, and tell us about the superstition about being the sixth player out of the tunnel before the game and at half time for the start of the second half. What's that all about? Yeah, do you know what? This that was a weird one. When you sent me through the, the copy of it and I looked at it and I thought, what was that all about? I don't, I don't actually remember that being a, a, a like superstition for me. But what I do know is, as I got older, I sort of, um, my number, I remember my kit number, I started off at West Ham at number eight, and then I went to number nine, and then I went to number 10. And I remember as I went through the numbers, I sort of went to ninth coming out of the tunnel, and then 10th coming out of the tunnel. Um, and then, of course, when the squad numbers come in, and I was 27, that was irrelevant. I couldn't be 27th out of the tunnel. So um, I, I think it was... It, I honestly can't answer the question about sixth out of the tunnel, but I know as my career sort of went through, I always sort of looked to myself as a number nine or a number 10, and I always sort of came out towards the end. You, if you watch most clips of me running out, including, I think, at Wembley uh, for the FA Cup final for Everton, I think you'll find I was quite a way down, you know, sort of nine or 10 as, as you come out to the pitch. Right, well, let's step away from West Ham and the football for a bit to explore some of your other answers. So first up, you owned a Ford Escort 1.6i Cabriolet. Now, that sounds fancy. Uh, and you lived in a one-bedroom flat in Hornchurch. Now, I've never been to Hornchurch, Hornchurch but uh, knowing that it's on in, in within the boundaries of London, I can imagine that that flat is probably worth a small fortune these days. And, and the car's probably still worth a few bob as well. Oh, you, you, do you know what? With the, with the benefit of hindsight, Mark, I think we would all have done things. Things differently. I mean, if you'd have said to me in 1985 when this interview was that, you know, if I'd, if I'd have kept my Ford Escort that I paid, I think I paid £10,000 for it back in 85, which was still a lot of money. And I picked it up about, I think, one minute after midnight because you, you know, you had these deadlines where you could collect your car. So it was a brand new car, 10 grand, and it probably would be worth 40 grand now if I'd have kept it in the garage and kept it in good condition. Um, the flat, I paid 45 grand for the flat, and that would probably be worth 200 grand now. I haven't got the flat anymore. I sold that. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's lots of things that you live and learn through life, isn't it? And you know, I think hindsight, you would you would do things differently, but you make your decisions. And you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that you you make your decision at the time. It's the right decision at the time, and then you can't look back and say, I wish I'd have done things different because at the time it was the right decision. So, I haven't got the flat on the car. I wish I did, but I haven't. Uh, well, your hobbies were having a lie-in on days off and listening to soul music, which is very evident in your choice of favourite singers who you've given as George yep. Benson and Cool and the Gang. So, first of all, are you still listening to either of those two? Uh, and are you still a soul music fan? Yeah, I still love my soul music. I would, I would say that um, my, my music tastes have probably, what's the word, diversified, I think, over the years. I think as you get older and you listen to other music and you can appreciate other music. I think as a kid, when I, certainly when I'd done the interview, um, I, I'd sort of grown up very much as a soul man. And, you know, I loved, I loved George Benson calling the game. I went to watch him in the concerts at Wembley and in London whenever I was playing. So I had great times watching those guys. But I think as you get older, you... Your music changes, doesn't it? And you know, modern day music. There's some there's some fantastic records that are made that I actually really enjoy. You know, listening to. I mean, you know, there are some rubbish ones out there. Let's be honest. But um, yeah, I still like my soul music. And if, I think if, if one of the old school eighty tracks comes on, if I'm in the kitchen listening to the music, which I do pretty much every night, if I get an old school and I do pump it up a little bit, I've got to be honest. Now, your favourite TV shows were Only Fools and Horses, Minder and the Sweeney. 
Um, so we were you not allowed to have anything other than Cockney TV programmes in the Cotty household? I was just going to say, there was no Coronation Street back in those days. Whatever there, there, there was, and there is, still is. But I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think, uh, I, I don't know. It was just, it was my sense of humour, really. I think when, you, when you're a London boy, you know, I, I suppose, like, you could argue, like, if you're a Scouse and you've got the boys from the black stuff or whatever it is, you know, you know, Liver Birds or something, you know, you would grow up maybe watching them. And, you know, they was just three fantastic shows, you know, that I, I love watching. Funny enough, I was bored the other day and I put... Um, I think on Gold, Sky Gold, you can watch Falls and Horses and I put an episode on and I was still laughing. Now, bearing in mind, the episode was probably about 25, 30 years old and I'm still laughing at something that's been repeated about 100 times. But I think, you know, like the, the, the Falls and Horses were, was great. Minder, Minder was very funny as well with George Carl and Dennis Waterman and, and uh, the Sweeney was a bit more action and shooting and fast cars and everything. But, you know, that, that, was, just, that was just my era of growing up that, was the stuff that I enjoyed watching. Uh, now, your favourite other sports, you've said, were golf and snooker. Uh, now, I've seen your Twitter feed, and it still seems that you're a keen player of, the, of golf. Um, who were the West Ham golf bandits and the pool sharks back in the day? Oh, um, so back in the 80s, oh, I'm just trying to think. Um, I think Trevor Brooking was a decent player. I played with Trevor in the early part of my career. But do you know what? The golf... I've, I don't think we sort of really took it that serious to golf. It was much more of a, a sort of a release. Like, you know, if you finish training early in, I don't know, May time or something, and then you, you, you're you at home at one o'clock and you sort of just go to the golf course and you, you, you kill four hours like, going around the golf course, you know. I think the one thing players do have, they have a lot of time on their hands. So I think the golf was a way of sort of sitting on a buggy or whatever and just killing four hours of time, really, you know. I, I never, I've never played golf to become better which probably sounds a bit contradictory because I said that I, you know, I'm, I'm a competitive sportsman but even now I'm, I still only play off 16 I say only I mean obviously that's relatively good but it's not a single digit handicap you know I think you know when I came back to West Ham in the mid 90s we had Julian Dix who was playing off scratch we had John Moncur who was playing off scratch you know Don Hutchison plays off six you know so there were some really good golfers talented golfers um, but I've always played it just uh, for the social more than anything. I mean, you know, to go and sit with your mates or walk with your mates around the course for four hours, go in the bar in normal circumstances, go in the bar and have a couple of pints after and, you know, talk about the last night's football. That, that's what golf was all about for me. Um, Paul-wise, I'd like to think I was one of the sharks that, <laughs> that were out there. And again, it was a lot of the time it was going to the golf course and obviously if it was raining, you couldn't play golf. <laughs> so I'd go and play, there was a full-size snooker table in my local golf club, so I'd go and play snooker and obviously if you went into a, a bar or whatever, if you were on holiday, you'd play, play pool. So, you know, I still like to think I'm relatively handy with a, a snooker cue, um, but no, I don't play as, uh, as much as I used to. I still enjoy watching it. I love watching Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's my favourite. Well, back to the football now. Uh, and you were asked for your ambition for 1986 and you said that you wanted to win something with West Ham and score more than your strike partner, Frank McAvenny. Uh, unfortunately, you scored 26 while Frank got 28. And despite a fantastic campaign in the first division, which brought you the uh, brought about the club's highest ever league finish, there was no silverware at the end of it all. Uh, you did you did get some personal consolation by winning the Hammer of the Year award. So, firstly, let's talk about you and McAvenny. Uh, every side in the first division back then had a decent strike partnership, and you two were right up there with the best. So, what was it about your respective games that that dovetailed so well? Well, I think um, Frank, me and Frank were very different. And like, listen, we're still great mates. I still speak 
to him a lot. And um, but we were very, very different off the field. You know, very different characters. You know, Frank was very much. He came down from Scotland. He was very much the playboy going out in London and doing what he was doing. And I was sort of, I don't know, just like a homeboy really. You know, I, my idea of a night out after the game really was to sort of get a takeaway and see him watch match of the day. You know, and I'm not saying I'm boring because I'm not, but it was just we were just two different characters. And on the field, I think that was the same, really. You know, Frank's work rate and his ethic for the team was fantastic. A great finisher. Um, I learned a lot of Frank when he arrived at the football club. And I think he learned off me as well. You know, he's always said that I'm the best finisher he played with. Bearing in mind, he played with Kenny Dalglish. That's a huge compliment. You know, that, you know that I love it when he says that. But, um, you know, it was just a shame we didn't win anything that season because although... You know, the personal accolades arrived for me and Frank went to the World Cup at the end of that year. Um, you know, it was just a shame that we didn't, didn't win the league. You know, it was a, it was a fantastic uh, race for the title. And uh, unfortunately, Liverpool won it at the end. Um, they won, I think they won the last 10 games, which was incredible. But, you know, right up until the end, there was ourselves, Everton, Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, Tottenham were up there. You know, there were some really big names and clubs up there and um, everyone always goes on about the famous game at Anfield in 1989 when it was Liverpool Arsenal and Arsenal won 2-0 and won the league but on that last day last but one day of the 86 season if the results had gone differently Everton would have played West Ham on the Monday night at Goodison and that would have been a live game for winner takes all to win the old Division 1 so you know three years previous to the, the famous 89 game we would have had an 86 game so that was how close both Everton and West Ham came to winning the league that year. And, of course, Everton won it either side of there anyway. So, uh, yeah, it was a disappointment not to win anything at West Ham, especially it was my club. I think when it's your club, you, you try hard to make things happen. But, you know, we, we always seem to get knocked out of the cup at the quarter-final stage. And the only chance we had of winning the league was that 86 season. It's a bit of a strange outlier that season because... Um... Yeah, you, you finished third, and as you say, you you pushed Liverpool uh, and Everton, and as you say, it could have gone right down to that that last. Uh, I think it was a, was it a bank holiday Monday, but either side of that, West Ham had finished in the bottom half of the table, and I think you'd had roughly the same team over those two three years. So why did it all of a sudden click in that one year? Whereas it it wasn't something that built up gradually and continued. It was it was just kind of, it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think well, I think there was three key factors. You're quite right. The season before, we, we finished about 15th and never got anywhere doing anything. And I, I didn't expect the, the wonderful season that we had. You know, I mean, the West Ham fans still talk about that season because West Ham have never finished third before and they haven't finished third after. So it's, it's a season that everyone looks back on. But I think the three key factors for, for the team gelling was Mark Ward, who you'll know very well with West Ham signed from Oldham, was a fantastic player, played on the right wing. Frank McAvenny, we've already spoken about. And uh, the great Alan Devonshire came back from injury as well. He'd been out for 18 months and he came back and he was our best player. So effectively, in terms of going forward, you had three wonderful players linking up with the likes of myself and Alan Dickens, who was already at the football club. So we had really talented players going forward. We had a solid back four. We had Phil Parks, one of the you know, most expensive goalkeeper at one stage. Ray Stewart, Scottish international. Tony Gale, really, really good footballer. Alvin Martin, England international. And then we had Steve Walford, who was a very experienced left-back. So, you know, we all got into our positions. And once we went on a run of form, no one got injured. It was one of those seasons where everyone stayed fit. And we just kept picking the same team. And, and 
you know what football's like. You've seen it with many, many other teams. Once you get the confidence and you start winning games, then you go on the run. And you know, we just had a fabulous run. We was 18 games unbeaten at one time, which for West Ham, they, they don't normally go 18 minutes, let alone 18 games unbeaten. So it was a, yeah, it was a special season. It was just a great shame we didn't win it. Yeah. Well, you moved uh, on to Everton in 1988 for a British record free. Uh, British record fee uh, and scored a hat-trick against Newcastle on your debut. Uh, I was there and remember it extremely vividly. Uh, But overall, it it never really quite worked out at Everton in terms of the team recreating the the mid-1980s glory days. Um, It must have been pretty disappointing that it didn't quite go as you expected over your six six years there. Yeah, um, you know, the thing is, Mark, is... You know, I made it quite clear at the time, and I'll say it now, that the reason I signed for Everton was I wanted to win trophies. You know, I'm, I'm looking as a, as a London boy. I love my football. I, I, you know, I, 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 I take notice of what other teams were doing. And, you know, you could see that Everton had, you know, built under Howard Kendall. They built a really good team. They won the league, uh, 85 and 87. They won the Cupmaners Cup. They won the FA Cup. And the mid-80s was a wonderful era for Everton. So by the time I signed in 88, they'd literally won the league the year before in 87. So I'm thinking that the, you know, the nucleus of that team was still there. The likes of Sharpie, Sheedy, Neville Southall, uh, Dave Watson, Kevin Ratcliffe, Peter Reid, Trevor Stephen, you know, wonderful players. And I'm, I signed and Pat Nevin, um, Stuart McCall, Neil McDonald signed. Well, there was four of us signed at once. We then had Martin Keown, who was a tremendous defender, Peter Beagree. There was a good player signed for the club. And uh, I don't know. It's it's very hard to sort of say why we didn't why we didn't gel really. I, whether there was a little bit of like the young ones that arrived and were taking the place of the old ones, a little bit of, sort of almost jealousy. It probably was a bit of that. Um, you could argue that some of the young ones, myself included, didn't consistently perform. You know, you mentioned my debut. I mean, my debut for Everton is is up there with my West Ham debut, and it was one of the it was probably the peak of my Everton career, which is it's hard to say that because. I had six years there and you think the peak was my first game and, you know, that's, that's sort of frustrating to say that, you know, because I thought when that happened, you think, well, here we go, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna score 40 goals this season, we're going to win the league and obviously that never happened, lost in the cup final at the end of the season um, and I don't know, it was just it was just difficult for me. I, I always say about my time at Everton, bearing in mind Everton won the league in 87, they won the FA Cup in 95 and I joined in 88 and left in 94. So there was a six-year spell with either side of the two victories. You know, it was just for me, it was the right club at the wrong time. And, you know, I didn't know that. Obviously, you sign in good faith, you go there, you, you, you know, look, listen, I always gave it my best. You know, I didn't always play well, I accept that, but I always tried my hardest. My goal-scoring record, I scored 99 goals for the club. I'm in the top 10 goal scorers of all time for Everton. And I'm very, very proud of that, you know, and I think it could have been so much better but I don't know I honestly don't know the reasons for whatever whatever reasons it just it never really really clicked for me and of course then just to compound it all at the end of my career um, you know just as I was sort of settling down and thinking oh you know we're going to go on and do something again and uh, unfortunately Mike Walker took charge he sold me and then of course three months later the manager I wanted to play for which was Joe Royal arrived and Big Duncan arrived as centre forward and you know I would have scored you know loads of goals along side big dunk so you know that was even more frustrating that I, I missed both those two characters by three months mm. but, um, I look listen I look back with real pleasure and real 
I'm really proud of the fact I played for such a great football club for six and a bit years, you know, and it was six happy years. My daughter was born in Southport. You know, I had a great time up there. Uh, well, you returned to West Ham uh, and after a second spell at Upton Park and a brief sojourn to Thailand, uh, there was a, an Malaysia. Indian sum. Malaysia, Malaysia yeah, sorry, Thailand, Malaysia. Malaysia. <laughs> That's, shoot, shoot the researcher. Uh, there was an Indian summer at Leicester City, uh, and yeah. we talked about that first major honour uh, in the English game to round off very good career in the top flight. And of course, you'd also played um, for England. Um, why? What, what was the the whole thing about Selangor and Malaysia about? How did that sort of transpire? Well, it was. I don't know. It was a strange one, really, because I, I, you know, West Ham, Everton, went back to West Ham. For for a couple of years, two and a bit years, and you know, I was happy. I didn't, I didn't want to leave the club. I'd left the club once before, and in my mind, I wanted to stay. Um, but Harry Redknapp was the manager, and he, what he'd done, he spent a lot of money in the summer, you know, buying quite a few European players in. And uh, he sort of came to me and he said, uh, he said, look, we've had an offer from this club in Malaysia, and I'm sort of thinking, well, I don't really want to play in Malaysia. I wanted to play in England, but there, there was no interest, believe it or not. Bear in mind, I've been top scorer of West Ham in the previous two seasons. There was no interest from anyone in England, no Premier League or Championship. And um, I, I looked at the offer. I flew to Malaysia. I, I came back. It was it was a it was a good financial offer. I, it wasn't anything that was ever going to set me up for life. But compared to the, the sort of small amounts of money I've been getting, because I played in the era where we we didn't get the vast rewards they get now, we we got nice money, but it wasn't anything more than that. So to to have a lump sum offer from Malaysia for me was I thought you know what I'll go and play out in Malaysia for. A year or so I'll come back and uh, I'll play for one of my local clubs I was more than happy to do that I'll come back and play for Orient or South End or whatever um, and that was the plan and of course I went to Malaysia um, you know it didn't quite work out for me my wife at the time became pregnant and it was it was like a good excuse if you like to sort of come back home um, and then when I when I came back I, I signed for Leicester and you know to come back to the Premier League for me was you know it was like a dream come true really because I was I was 32 years of age and, you know, I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to be playing in the Premier League. But, you know, I ended up, I had three seasons back at Leicester. I was top scorer two of the seasons. I played up front with Emil Heskey and we had a really good team. And I won my only major trophy at the club. So to get those three years for me was a massive bonus. Um, well, usually this is where we ask some of our guests what happened to you next after you hung your boots up. But of course, we know that um, you uh, you've gone on to be a, one of the you know, Sky's top pundits and, and um, summarizers in the games. Um, but I, I, I was reading about you, and excuse me for having not seen this film, but I believe that you followed Vinnie Jones into movie superstardom, uh, which was alongside uh, Dave Bautista and Pierce Brosnan. I did, yeah. Anyone who's not seen the film, the film's called Final Score. Um, and would I advise to watch it? Um, it's it's a typical sort of film where you know, everyone's getting shot and blown up and everything. And uh, it, it, it's quite a funny story, Mark, because the um, the uh, director of the film is a is a West Ham fan, and um, he he, uh, he rang me up and he said, "Look, you know, we're we're going to be filming at the old Bowley in the Upton Park ground before." The club had literally just left the stadium and were moving to the London Stadium. And this was back in 2016. He said, we've got a little small window of about a week. Um, we're going to blow up one of the stands and everything. And they had full permission by the club to do it because obviously it was getting demolished anyway. And uh, he said, we're going to make a movie. He said, do you want to be in the film? I said, yeah, that's all right. Well, that's fine. You know, he said, I will give you a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a fee for it. I'm like, okay, brilliant. Uh, so I didn't ask any questions. And I, I didn't know what I was doing or what I was getting into and everything. 
So anyway, when I turned up on the night, it was a Wednesday night, and um, you, you had to get there for about seven o'clock. And uh, in the end, we didn't start filming until about half eleven at night because everything was overrunning with all the other stuff they were doing. And uh, anyway, so about nine o'clock, he said, oh, we're ready. We're going to start getting you ready for it. I said, well, what, what, what am I doing? He said, we're going to kill you. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, well, what have we got to do? He said, well, we're going to shoot you and you've got to pretend to be dead. I said, well, how do I do that? I said, I've never been dead before. Like, it was quite a comedy sketch type of thing. And uh, anyway, like, so they put this plastic thing on my chest and they said this baddie, the, the guy that you mentioned comes in and he's going to fire the gun at you. And they, they've got the special effects guy. As he fires the gun, all the blood pumps out of my shirt like that. And, and I just sort of throw myself back like that as if I'm dead. And it, I mean, my acting is dreadful. I was hoping to get nominated <laughs> for an Oscar, but obviously they never called for me. So, um, yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It's, I, I, I just think, I think sometimes as you, as you get a little bit older, it's, it's nice to do something like that. And, um, you know, being a, being a film, it's, it's, I can say, well, at least I've been in a film with Piers Brosnan and James Bond. And there's probably not too many people who can say that, Mark. So, I'm, yeah, am I proud of it? Sort of. I think it's, it's the word, sort of. Um, and, okay, to finish off, what advice would you give yourself if you were able to go back in time and speak to that person in 1985-86 that we can see here in this interview? Oh dear, that's a tough question. Uh, what would I say? Um, I, I think I think I would say to him, stay at West Ham um, because you're a West Ham boy. Um, but having said that, see that, that the problem with me saying that is that I wouldn't have had the experiences I had with Everton and Leicester and Malaysia and all all the other things that happened to me in life. But I think I would try and say to that young boy, that young Tony guy, to, to try and do a Mark Noble, try and stay at the club, you know, be a club legend, and try and score all your goals you know because I got 293 domestic goals you know in English football and if I'd have done that I would have ended up as the second highest goal scorer in West Ham's history I'd have beaten Jeff Hurst who's currently in second place and yeah and then perhaps I would have said to him um, keep your flat rent it out one day and keep your XR free put it in the garage because it's going to be worth 40 grand when you get to 2020 <laughs> but uh, like I say hindsight's a great thing but um, yeah um, listen there's not a lot I would change about my career Mark yeah there's a few things that I would perhaps do slightly different but I think in general I had a wonderful career I loved my time as a footballer I loved my time as a pundit and uh, yeah there's not a lot I would say to that young boy other than to you know, enjoy yourself enjoy your life and I would say that to anyone who's listening to this enjoy yourself enjoy your life because it goes too quickly well Tony uh, it's been absolutely brilliant to speak to you today uh, and thank you so much not only for this but also for um, you know giving inspiration to a 13 year old boy who didn't know what to do with his hair uh, and also who you know tried to be like you in front of goal at least um, failing miserably um, so I hope it's been fun for you too looking back at this old shoot interview I've enjoyed it, Mark. Yeah, it's been good to speak to you and uh, keep supporting the Blues and hopefully they'll have a good season. Maybe getting Europe at the end of the season would be nice. Uh, our listeners can still follow you regularly on uh, Sky Sports and, of course, you're on Twitter and Instagram too, aren't you? Yes, I am, mate. Yeah, if you can just pass the details on that, would be great, yeah. You can follow Tony on Twitter at TonyCotty9 and on Instagram at Tony underscore Cotty. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. 
for extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.